it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Through the rest of this week, delighted to be here even more delighted that you're all here with me. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's every weekday. Our online hub here at the program is GuyBensonShow.com. My name show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free of charge, on demand, every single day. Programming note, I'll be on Kennedy tonight, filling in for Kennedy tonight and tomorrow. That's 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network. I do find it somewhat curious, even suspicious, that our dear libertarian friend Kennedy happens to be off on 420. Huh. If you know, you know. But I'll be in the seat, perfectly sober, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network this evening. On the radio side, Andy McCarthy will be here. Legal analysis coming your way later this hour from Andy. Shannon Bream, new best-selling book is out She'll be joining us in studio. Can't wait for that conversation with Shannon. And then Bill Hammer, another one of our colleagues here at Fox, America's newsroom host. I'll be on with him tomorrow morning, along with Dana Perino, of course, the two of them. Bill Hammer here also in studio in the 5 o'clock hour Eastern. So uh, we've got a very exciting lineup today, and I am thrilled to be here with all of you. Let's begin with a story that we opened with yesterday as well which is the fall of the mask mandate on transportation modes, thanks to this federal judge down in Florida. And as I mentioned yesterday, a lot of the attacks on her are basically about her pedigree, the president who appointed her, her age, her relative lack of experience. The critiques seem to sort of trend away from or shy away from Legal analysis, which I think is actually ultimately what the critique ought to be based on. If you think that she got it wrong, who cares if she was a Trump appointee? Who cares if she's 35 years old? Who cares that the American Bar Association, a liberal organization, didn't like her and that she has history with the Federalist Society? Who cares? Ignore all of that. I know that you're like sending signals. This is a bad person that we shouldn't like. For all of these reasons, go after the substance. And there has been precious little of that from opponents of the decision. The White House seems to have been caught very flat-footed by all of this. The administration is reckoning and wrestling with what to do next. In fact, here's a little mashup from yesterday, because this happened, by the way, I'll remind you, today's Wednesday, it was Monday afternoon that the news broke. We had that breaking news here on the show. 
by Tuesday, you would think they had an afternoon, an evening, and morning meetings to get the word out, this is our position in the administration. But they couldn't really do that. So they were all over the map. This is cut 13, all of these clips yesterday. The CDC continues to uh, advise and recommend masks on airplanes. We're abiding by the CDC recommendations. The president is, and we would advise all Americans to do that. People continue to wear masks on planes. That's up to them. We are right now in the process of deciding, and we likely will appeal that ruling. There was a Washington Post story, I believe, that basically found that there were conflicting voices within the White House on this issue, what to do. And they were just punting it around to each other. No one wanted to make a final decision because there are inherent political problems here. And we glanced upon this yesterday. If they immediately come out of the gate and say, we are going to challenge this legal ruling, we are going to appeal. Then it looks like the Biden administration is racing out there to try to reimpose an unpopular mandate on American travelers. Now, you might argue that it's not unpopular. I'll get to that in just a minute. And if they feel like, hey, it's actually popular and needed, then they could have said, we're going straight to court. We're asking for an injunction or a stay. We're trying to have this ruling vacated pending appeal. They didn't do that. It appears that they are going to appeal, but not in such a way that would require a toggle back immediately to the mandate being in place. So they might get to the appeal and maybe it's just like on principle down the line so they can at least say that they're doing something on this. Chuck Todd from NBC, he seemed kind of upset by the White House just taking an L here in a way that makes it look like their policies are incoherent. Maybe it's because their policies are incoherent. Here was Chuck Todd, cut nine. Folks, it's one thing for a Trump judge to strike down an order from the Biden White House, but it's an entirely different thing for the White House to let it happen without any legal pushback. And it's not the first time recently that something hasn't gone the White House's way. They don't fight back. They don't defend their rationale. They just give you the the emoji shrug. He sounds disappointed there. Also, I thought Trump judge was bad, that formulation, right? When Trump would call them Obama judges, they're like, how, how dare you? Our judiciary is independent and we don't. I understand what Trump meant by Obama judge and what Chuck Todd meant by Trump judge. I just thought we weren't supposed to say that sort of thing. But I guess the rules are constantly changing and very confusing. But, yeah, at the White House, they have to say, "Okay, are we going to fight this? Are we going to fight this as hard as we can legally? Clearly not. They have not done that. What they are doing is the shrug emoji to borrow his term. Eh, I guess it's people's choice. They can make that choice for themselves. We're disappointed and we're going to appeal, but not really immediately so that the decision gets overturned or the practical effect gets overturned instantly. We're not going to do that, but we are doing something. So don't worry, left wing base, but also don't worry other voters. We're not going to force the masks back onto your faces immediately, even though they could have just let the thing expire a few days ago and they chose not to. 15 more days to slow the spread was their decision. It almost feels like they are getting the worst of all worlds on this because they've been unwilling to actually show leadership and make decisions. And so that's how you get all this muddled 
messaging. Now, understand the hardcore lefties are very angry about this. They're out there with their defiant selfies. I'm in a mask on this plane. Screw this judge. No one's going to tell me science or whatever. Right? That is, that's my very highbrow impression. The thing is, as I said yesterday, no one's stopping you. No one's stopping you. Wear the mask. Let me, let me, maybe you'll understand it this way. I'm going to talk like I'm talking through a mask. No one's preventing you from wearing your mask. You can wear it if you want to. That's the whole point of choice here. If you want to protect yourself, you've got an N95 mask, you've got pre-existing conditions, you're an elderly person, whatever it might be, do it. I said this on Gutfeld last night. It's a point I've made before. Mary Catherine Ham had a good tweet on it yesterday, too. It's like we need to have a big remedial national conversation about the difference between something being no longer required by the government and something being banned. Like Valerie Jarrett, Obama's Svengali, did this big preening post on social of her in a car with the mask on being like, I'm not going to listen to non-scientists. My mask stays on. And I saw someone was like, oh, here's a photo of you at South by Southwest indoors without a mask on doing selfies. What, what's the science there, Val? And the answer is capital S science doesn't need to make sense. It doesn't need to, in fact, be scientific at all. It's about signaling your virtue to your tribe. That's it. So just as a quick primer and explainer once again, I'll speak slowly for some of these folks. Just because the federal government is no longer forcing everyone to wear a mask in certain settings does not mean that you are not allowed to wear your mask in said settings. In fact, you may. And if you want to, you should. God bless. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. It shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that hard. But we've become a dumber society in so many ways. And it feels like the trend is really escalating. It's a bit alarming, actually, come to think of it. Now, all the rage today is blue check marks sharing this poll from the Associated Press. So a new AP poll, a majority of Americans continue to support a mask requirement for people traveling on airplanes. So according to this poll, 56% of majority of Americans say, yes, keep requiring masks on planes as opposed to just 24% who were opposed and against that requirement. 56 to 24, so it's a big spread. Right, that's a double-digit advantage based on this poll for the people who are in favor of the mask requirement staying in place. That's what the AP put out in their new polling. And all these people with journalists never sharing it, look at this, a majority of Americans don't agree with this decision and they want the masks to still be on and only 24% disagree, but they're very loud and now this judge has spoken for the 24%. Okay, let me just say this. I'm not one to instantly dismiss polling that I disagree with. Just say, oh, it's a fake poll. What I personally believe doesn't matter. What matters is the truth and people's actual behavior and actions. 
So if it's true that a majority of Americans want these mask requirements in place and only a small handful, one out of four, want the mandate gone, what you will see is large majorities, clear majorities of people choosing to keep their masks on their faces on airplanes and in airports. Right. That would make sense. If that's the mood of the country, you'll just see one out of every four people take their mask off and everyone else will keep it on. Let's think about a few different things. The U.S. Senate voted more than a month ago on this transportation mask mandate to get rid of it. Rand Paul introduced it. The vote was 57 to 40 to get rid of it. 57 to 40 to get rid of it, including multiple Democrats. There's like eight or nine Democrats across the aisle. Do they believe that 56% of the country is really in favor of keeping that mandate? That had a big bipartisan vote in the other direction in the Senate? I'm skeptical. Oh, and you see all the videos of people cheering when they announced mid-flight. We played you some of the audio yesterday. Ladies and gentlemen, the mandate's gone. You don't have to wear it. It's now a choice, and people are clapping on the planes. Sound like more than one out of four people. That's anecdotal. That's fine. I did see this tweet from a guy that I follow. I know a little bit. Michael Del Moro. He was a producer at Good Morning America, I believe, at ABC. He was at MSNBC for years. He was just down in Miami. He tweeted this. Just earlier this morning, he said the merits of the judge's ruling aside, and this probably goes without saying, but the online debate, meaning on Twitter, appears to be out of sync with reality. Pretty clear majority of travelers on my flight, the entire flight crew and people at both Newark and Miami, the two airports, were not wearing masks. Which comes as a shock if you believe the AP poll where 56 percent of Americans demand the masks on and only 24 percent want it to be optional, in actual practice, what we're seeing is a hell of a lot of people choosing to take the mask off, including pilots and flight attendants, and the list goes on. Now, you might say, look, the data is the data, and your anecdotes don't matter, guy. The poll says what it says. Okay, fine. Point granted. Let's just say there's a big 20-plus point gap here. The Democrats ought to exploit it. This is my challenge. This is my encouragement to the Democratic Party right now. I urge the White House to aggressively challenge this decision in court. Get it thrown out. Get those masks back on. Go fight in court. It's the right thing to do, you say. It's the science, you say. It's popular, you say. All right, go fight for it, please. Let's have that debate. Let's see those challenges. Let's file those appeals stat effective immediately if possible. Meanwhile, Democrats, I know a bunch of them just crossed the aisle to vote against this thing. But, hey, the poll's the poll. This is popular. This could actually help them. Right. They're going to get massacred in November. Maybe not. Maybe if they all rally around the super popular idea of bringing back mask mandates. Maybe they can. Pull their feet out of the fire and salvage some seats. Maybe they can make the best of this. Make this the centerpiece of your 2022 campaign, please, Democrats. Do it. The AP poll is right there for you to see. Hold floor votes on it. House and Senate, let's go. Run ads, especially in swing districts. Some of these purplish states and Senate seats, go for it. Your friends on Twitter, the blue checkmark journals, they're all excited about this poll. We're the weird outliers, apparently. We're the folks who don't believe the data. 
Put your money where your mouth is. If you believe that the mask mandate requirement is popular and we're the fringe, then act like it. Have your actions back up your claims. I encourage in the strongest terms the Democratic Party to do that because I believe firmly based on everything that I have seen and witnessed over the last two years that if they were to do that, they would be sealing their fate for an absolute blowout in November. And guess what? Here's the little secret. They know it too, which is why they're not doing the things that left-wing Twitter is demanding. Because left-wing Twitter is actually the weird echo chamber here, not yours truly. But again, let's see. Let the people decide. Let's see how people actually vote with their behavior. Talk about voting with your feet. Vote with your faces. Are we going to have your faces covered or not? Let's just see how people decide and see if this Associated Press poll actually holds up or not. I'll be eager to see that. I know how I would personally bet. I also know my personal choice on this matter, which thankfully I now have no thanks whatsoever to the Biden administration. Another bang-up job by that crew. The Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Wednesday from New York City. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson, so I love this story. It's related to the opening monologue. This Twitter user named Jared Rebel tweeted this yesterday. Quote, I boarded a plane today with my son, and mid-flight, the pilot announces that the mask mandate is over. Flight attendants pulled off their masks and sneezed directly into their, into their hands while screaming, This is MAGA airspace. My son turned to me in tears. I don't know what to do. Obvious satire, making fun of a certain genre of tweet. Sneezing into their hands and screaming MAGA airspace, come on. This guy gets a Twitter DM from a New York Times reporter. I'm a journalist. I saw your tweets. I'd love to speak to you about what happened, what the flight attendants did. I look forward to hearing from you. And he sent back a very snarky response about satire and how the New York Times basically is satire at this point. (laughs) I mean... Perfect. Only a journalist would believe that was real. Our truth detectors in our society, our brave firefighters, God bless them. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. <laughs> His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is the website, podcast, free of charge, on demand every day. And joining us is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, 
former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books. His Twitter feed is at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you. We just opened here for the second consecutive day talking about the mask mandates for transportation modes and the judge and the decision down in Florida, which is now affecting the whole country, at least for the moment, and the White House slash Biden administration's decision-making process about what to do next. So I just want to ask you from a legal perspective, number one, what do you think of the judge's decision on substance? A lot of the, as I mentioned, a lot of the reaction to it has been about her age, who appointed her, the American Bar Association review of her work, not the actual substance of the ruling that she handed down. Uh, That's number one. And then number two, what are your thoughts on the administration's response to it, which strikes me as sort of muddled and trying to split the baby and kind of confused. Maybe you can shed some light on it. Yeah, I think, Guy, that in a bottom line way, the judge is right in the four corners of the case. But I disagree with her on her uh, textual analysis that the statute didn't authorize the mandate. So let me I don't want to hit everybody with a bunch of lawyerly gobbledygook. I think you have to separate her ruling, which, by the way, is a very good workmanlike legal piece of work. I happen to disagree with her, but I don't think her point is uh, is frivolous. But there's two separate things about the opinion. One is, does the statute, the relevant statute in the uh, U.S. Code, authorize the CDC to issue the mandate? I think she has a very exacting and I think too rigid uh, textual interpretation of the statute, which to my mind clearly allows the CDC to issue this kind of mandate. And uh, to your initial point, we're not talking here now about whether this is wise policy and whether masks are effective. The question is simply the legal issue of does the statute authorize the CDC to do this. I think it does. She says it doesn't. Um, The second question in the case is procedural, which is that the the Biden administration completely ignored the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act that they have a notice and comment period before they put a regulation like this into effect. And there's no excusing what they did. They just basically arrogantly said, uh, this is such common sense Uh, You know, why should we invite public comment? Obviously, they didn't want public comment because there's a lot of questions about this policy. It might not be quite so commonsensical. Right. And and regardless of whether their motive was good or bad, the, the fact of the matter is they didn't comply with the statute. So what I think it comes down to, Guy, and this is where I am really struggling with this, because what this comes down to is what should the remedy be? And as you remember... Uh, Constitutional conservatives, Republicans throughout the Trump administration wailed long and loud, and I was one of them, about this idea that unaccountable district judges in a single district uh, in the United States often forum shopped to get the cases in front of them, uh, nullifying policy of the executive branch that Congress had explicitly committed to the discretion and the judgment of the president. 
So I don't think we can take a position that these nationwide injunctions or, or what effectively what she did here is nationwide. Well, and by the way, Andy, this also cuts in the opposite direction as well. Liberals cheered those decisions for the previous four years. And now a lot of those same people are very angry that a single Trump appointed judge just in Florida can impose this on the whole country. Everyone just seems to have switched sides. Yeah, well, I haven't. So, Good. <laughs> Good. you know, I, 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 uh, I don't think that we can take a principled position on this that, that uh, you know, if, if our position is that if we like the policy outcome, it's, we cheer the judge, and if we don't like it, we complain about unaccountable judges. So to my mind, what she should do, Guy, and I don't, I don't completely foreclose the possibility that there are some cases where it might be appropriate for a judge to issue a nationwide injunction depending on, you know, how fundamental the right at stake was – but I think in the vast run of cases, the judge should just decide the case with respect to the four corners of the case with respect to the litigants in the case. So she should set aside the uh, the mandate because of the Administrative Procedure Act violation. She should do that in connection with the private plaintiffs who brought this case. And then if the Biden administration wants to appeal that or – if other litigants want to challenge the Biden administration based on the reasoning in the judge's opinion, or if Congress wants to jump in because they think the, this needs to be addressed, or if the public wants to conclude based on what the judge said that the Biden administration is abusing its power, that's the way things are supposed to work. Judges are not supposed to make policy. They're supposed to decide the narrow case in front of them. And if there are ramifications from that, then you let the chips fall where they fall. Okay, so I I think that's a principled position that makes sense to me. Obviously, that is not what has happened here. The policy was thrown out. And now you've got this weird dance that the Biden people are doing where you've got people on their left flank who are very angry. And they're treating this as if masks have been banned in America by one Trump judge, which is just crazy. But they want to pander to those people, as they so often do. So they're talking about an appeal, but not really an immediate appeal, like seeking a stay on the impact here, because whatever polling might show, they seem to think deep down that people aren't going to be happy if they aggressively try to reimpose this mandate. So they're kind of trying to say we're disappointed. We disagree. We're kind of going to push back legally, but not immediately. And for now, you can leave it to yourself. It's an option. I'm just trying to figure out what the coherent legal thinking is here, because it very much feels political what they're doing, even though the politics of it also are very confusing to me, what they're actually trying to accomplish. Guy, I think you're you're on the right track here, absolutely. What's happening here isn't really legally coherent. It's, it's really tap dancing politically to see how this is all going to shake out because they're dealing with a policy that they know is important to their very active, uh, <laughs> very rambunctious base, but what, which is unpopular nationally. And to the extent that there's legal coherence here, it's that if they appeal there's a very good chance that they'll lose. And I think, you know, they have a good case, to my mind, on the text of the statute. Like, does the statute authorize the mandate? But they so blatantly violated the Administrative Procedures Act, I think they would lose. And if they lose, that's bad for them. So 
I think what they're doing at the moment is just saying, let's see what the CDC has to say. And in the meantime, you know, they'll hope that this whole thing just peters out because this this mandate was going to expire anyhow at a certain point. And I think they'll eventually try to look at their base and say, you know, look, we did the best we could here. But, uh, you know, the court sided against us. And under the circumstances, we didn't think an appeal was prudent because I think there's a good chance they'll lose if they appeal. And that would be worse for them. Or they could win and the mass mandate comes back into place if they try to say, hey, we want to get this thing thrown out, this decision vacated immediately. And then the masks come back on. Then you've got an awful lot of very angry people blaming correctly the Biden administration. And the Republicans can, even more than they're already going to, come out to voters and say the Democrats are going to always be trying to put masks back on your faces. If you don't like that, we're the party for you. And I think that would be a very potent message heading into the fall. So, like, I feel like the the Biden administration doesn't want to lose, like, you know, challenge this and lose in short order because that's embarrassing and all the other reasons you don't want to lose, but they also might not want to win. Right. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, it, you know, here's the problem they have, Guy. The, you know, the lawyer left is, is among the most active and rambunctious conti- constituencies in the, in the Democratic Party. And what the Biden administration is trying to pull off here is they don't want to do the thing that they know will be politically unpopular – so they're trying to hoodwink their base into thinking that they lost on the law, and therefore, even though they'd love to fight the political battle, right? They blame can't. the Trump judge. And the that it's, yeah, and they can't. They're not going to be able to pull it off because there's a lot of lawyers on the left, and they know that there's a viable appeal here. And they're, you know, they're progressives. They want them to push, push, push in court, even if politically that's not the right thing to do. So. That's the quandary they're in. Yep, and they've created this problem for themselves with a bad policy. There's also that. Andy, yep. one more question, yep. totally separate topic. It's this Durham investigation. There's an update here in the last few days. The Hillary Clinton folks are back, and I guess they're trying to tell the court that certain communications from the 2016 Clinton campaign should not be introduced or involved in a related criminal case tied to the Durham investigation. What's going on here? I think this is one of the most delicious things, Guy, because if you remember the false statement against Michael Sussman, who's the lawyer that uh, Durham is prosecuting, is that he told them he wasn't working for any particular client when he was actually working for the Clinton campaign uh, and and this other guy who was trying to get a job in the Clinton campaign. And now they're trying to stop Durham from getting the relevant communications that they have that bear on the case, citing the attorney-client privilege, which, you know, <laughs> Tussman said that there was no attorney-client privilege. Right, he wasn't working for them. The whole case is about. Yeah, he, he wasn't right, working right, for so them. He told the FBI he wasn't working for them. He was working for them. That's why he's getting prosecuted. And now – to expose the lie, they're trying to get this information from the Clinton campaign, and the Clinton campaign, I'm sure, had been going along with the whole time. Oh no, he had nothing to do with us. That no, no, no. And I was like, actually, yes. Uh, this is protected. This is privileged, so we don't have to yeah, give it well, to you. Whiplash, guy. They're running a play that they're running a play they've been running for 30 years. If you remember everything the Clintons ever did that was shady, and we're talking about a lot of things here, <laughs> they always staffed up everything with lawyers. 
And then when people would try to, including Congress, when they would try to inquire into it, they would invoke attorney-client privilege, and they'd say, oh, no, no, you can't look at this. It's all you know, covered by the Constitution. And in point of fact, you don't have an attorney-client privilege unless you're discussing with your lawyer in a confidential way legal advice and very often in preparation for litigation. And none of that is going on. As Durham points out, there's hundreds and hundreds of conversations here mm. that don't involve lawyers at all. And the few that do are not necessarily confidential or about legal advice. So do you think they'll lose? Do you think Durham will get this stuff? Yes. Okay. Yes. I think right. Durham is very Durham is dogged, as we've seen. It may take a while, but he, you know, he eventually uh, gets the evidence. So you called that delicious. I'm going to say there could be some popcorn to be popped here. Let's see what comes of it. <laughs> Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, on the Guy Benson Show. Andy, as always, we appreciate it. Thank you. But thanks so much, Guy. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show from New York. Thank you for listening. So a topic that we have covered quite a lot here is the border crisis and specifically this Title 42 tool that our officials have been using. They've been stripped of basically the rest of their tools for the most part. The Biden administration is saying, oh, yeah, we're not really going to be deporting people. Even if they commit and are convicted of additional crimes beyond just being here illegally, they're not necessarily eligible for deportation. Actual ICE deportations have slowed to a trickle. The Remain in Mexico policy has been technically reinstituted, but not really. A lot of the things that were working under President Trump have been gutted by President Biden just because they were Trump things. And also because the Democratic base is in favor of illegal immigration. That's just the unfortunate reality. And their words and their actions generally point in that direction. Title 42 is this public health maneuver during the pandemic where you were able to take a lot of people and quickly remove them from the country, often single males who would cross the border. And then you could say, nope, you're going to get Title 42'd, almost using it as a verb. And you are removed. That's the expulsion tool. And the activists on the hard left have been saying, get rid of it. Pandemic's over. And by the way, these are the same people who are screaming that masks should still be required on airplanes. Many of them, like the Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap here. Keep the masks on Americans on airplanes, but end Title 42 because the pandemic's over. It's just all politics all the way down with these people. They've been saying, end Title 42, it's inhumane, it's not fair, let these people in. Millions and millions and millions of people to be just released into the country. As many have been, hundreds of thousands, about 80,000 last month alone just released into the country. And so the Biden people finally kowtowing to the hard left saying, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. We are going to do this. Late May, Title 42 goes away. And now there's been this drumbeat, even from Democrats, very worried Democrats, 
suddenly worried Democrats. All these Senate Democrats who are like, ooh, my reelection numbers are looking awfully soft. You know what? I'm going to stand up to the president on an issue, and that's going to be border security. They all voted against all the border security forever. The wall? Nah, screw that. Down with the wall. Money that was allocated for the wall? We're going to pay people not to build the wall. Take that, Trump. Take that, MAGA. Now all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, wringing their hands. Uh Uh-oh, we're in political trouble. Maybe we shouldn't get rid of this uh, Title 42 thing because the terrible disaster at the border is going to become far worse. The thing's going to just explode. Upwards of 18,000 a day could be coming at its peak if this thing goes away. That's the estimate from officials. So now you finally have these Democrats saying, you know, maybe just let's just uh, cool it a little bit on the open border stuff, at least until like whatever, November 7th or whatever the day is. So the day after the election, then we can go back to being very weak on these issues. But we have to pretend for a little while here. So let's let's not do the whole 42 thing. That seems a little politically dangerous to us as the problem will get worse and worse. Lo and behold, there was an Axios story yesterday that the Biden administration is considering delaying this move on Title 42. Jen Psaki asked about this earlier by Peter Ducey. Here's her response, cut 27. Is the president or are you guys having discussions with advisors about delaying the removal of Title 42? Well, I would, again, remind everyone, because you gave me the opportunity, so thank you. Title 42 is not an immigration authority. I will, I will, get, to your, I will, I will get to your question, I promise, Peter. Um, it is a public health authority. Congress gave the CDC authority to make determinations about when it should be lifted. So right now, we are planning and preparing for the end of Title 42 enforcement on May 23rd. People are saying, oh, she knocked it down. They're moving forward. That sounded like hedging to me. She said, right now, they're preparing for that date. That's not the same thing as we're sticking to that date. Keep an eye on this. We certainly will. On The Guy Benson Show, another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show from New York City today and tomorrow and Friday. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free, on demand, every day. Programming note, I'll be on Kennedy tonight, sitting in, anchoring the show tonight and tomorrow. 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. See you there. Fox News alert as we kick off the middle hour. Dow closing today again in the green up 249 points, closing above 35,000 at 35,160. Well, sometimes we like to do some fact checking here on the show because often the professional fact checkers are, let's see, what word am I looking for? Terrible. They're basically Democrats. And I understand, at least in my case, I put my chips on the table, right? You know where I stand. You know where I'm coming from. You know my politics, my ideology. I expound upon these thoughts every day for three hours 
with all of you, this audience. I'm not hiding the football. The fact checkers claim to be just journalists down the middle separating fact from fiction. That's all. And just very often they find themselves making excuses for Democratic lies and turning Republican truths into lies. Or at least Republican borderline truths or arguable truths into pants on fire, 18 Pinocchios, whatever. So I want to do some fact checking for all of you here today. And my source here is President Joe Biden, or at least someone who writes the tweets for President Joe Biden. I have a, a suspicion that Joe Biden is not out there uh, thumbing these tweets himself. Just a thought, but it's still going out under his name, under his at POTUS handle. So here's what he did. This was yesterday, I believe, on taxes. He says, after their massive tax giveaway to the super wealthy and giant corporations in 2017, congressional Republicans now want to raise taxes on middle class families. I won't let that happen. So he calls the tax law of 2017 a giveaway to the super wealthy and to giant corporations. And now he's accusing Republicans of wanting to raise taxes on middle class people. Now, just the sniff test real quick. You might be willing to believe that Republicans did a tax cut for rich people and for corporations. That might on its face seem very plausible. On its face, it is not plausible that the anti-tax party, basically their biggest brand on any issue, I would argue, is against taxes. That they're all of a sudden trying to win power back campaigning to raise taxes on the middle class? No, I don't think so. So we'll take these one at a time. Number one, the massive tax giveaway of 2017, the Republican passed tax law, which got zero Democratic votes, none in the House or Senate, signed by President Trump, was in fact an across-the-board tax cut for every single income group in America. It lowered taxes for every income group in America. And in fact, it did so disproportionately by some measures for middle and working class Americans. Yes, rich people got a tax cut. Also, poor people got a tax cut. Also, everyone in between got a tax cut. More than 80% of Americans got a tax cut. For the rest, it was either no change or a slight tax increase, and that was mostly among millionaires in blue states. So to describe what was passed into law in 2017 as a giveaway to the super wealthy and giant corporations ignores what actually happened under the law. I know I've talked about this before. Democrats have never stopped lying about this law. They lied about it when it was a bill. They lied about it while it was being passed. They lied about it after it was passed, and they continue to lie about it to this day with President Biden, grossly mischaracterizing it again. What happened after it passed, by the way? Incomes went up. Taxes went down across the board. Incomes went up. Wages finally went up substantially. There's a CBS News story at the time that middle and working class Americans disproportionately got larger 
increases in their wages. You remember how well the economy was doing in 2018 and 2019. It was cooking with gas. Until COVID rolled in from China, the economy was soaring. Wages, jobs, I mean, like record low unemployment across African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian uh, communities, women. Like you're checking all these demographic boxes, all-time lows in unemployment, jobs everywhere, wages going up. I think President Trump would have won re-election if COVID had never arrived or if he had handled it better, especially in the way he talked about things. Separate question for a separate day. But the economy, go back to 2019, was doing incredibly well. This was after the Democrats predicted that there would be Armageddon if the tax cuts passed and the tax reforms happened. That was Pelosi's word, Armageddon. She said it would be the end of the world, the single worst piece of legislation she had ever seen in her life. And that's a long time, that life. That's what she claimed at the time. And, of course, they said people were going to, say it with me, all together now, die. It's never like, hey, this Republican idea isn't great. It could be better. Uh, We think it maybe could be improved in these ways. It's like, people going to die. That's what they say every time. Remember, they were going to change net neutrality regulations. We're going to die. I'm surprised any of us are still alive from the great net neutrality genocide of 2017, was it? Then tax cuts were going to kill all of us. It's just like this is what they go to, death. And obviously, that's not what happened. The tax reforms went into place. People had higher wages, lower taxes, and more jobs. So they were absolutely wrong about that. Oh, and one other point, and I've mentioned this before as well, but I feel like every time they lie about this, I feel compelled, obligated to come back with the facts. One of their big arguments, the reason that they went with the death and destruction thing that they always do is, oh, if you're going to reduce taxes, the rich and the corporations aren't going to pay their fair shares, and then the government is going to have the revenue go down, and the government's going to starve, and they can't help people who are in need. In fact, what these tax cuts did was, like, fuel the economy into hyperdrive. The economy grew, and tax revenues, as predicted by conservatives, went up. Revenues hit record highs. Even after the pandemic, there was like a new record high expected for this last tax year. The most revenue ever brought in by the U.S. government. So like, oh, we're going to starve Uncle Sam and we can't help people in need? No. The problem is we're spending way more than we're taking in, even though we're taking in way more than ever before. The problem is spending, not letting people keep more of the money that they earn. That's what they get backwards. So that's point number one. Point number two, now that we've corrected the record on the 2017 law. He's saying that what the Republicans are now trying to do is raise taxes on the middle class. False. Where he's getting that from, by the way, and this is what the Democrats are going to try to do, Rick Scott, who's one senator in Florida, who's the NRSC chairman, he put out this like 11-point plan to say, look, voters want to vote for something, not just against something. Fine. Of the 11-point plan, like eight or nine of the points I think are totally unobjectionable and actually quite popular. Good. There were one or two in there that were much more politically problematic and risky and questionable as a policy proposition. One of which was like 
have every American have some in the game, uh, some skin in the game, I should say, to pay some amount of tax. And I get that from like a fairness perspective and like the have versus have nots, the makers and the takers, whatever. You want everyone to at least pay something in taxes so it's not just like, you know, a free ride for half the country or whatever. The problem is if you're going to push that, what the Democrats are going to say is, well, that would because much of the country does not pay any federal income tax and the vast majority of federal income taxes are paid by like the top 20 percent, the vast majority, like in in the ballpark of 70,000. That would require raising, even if it's by $1, taxes on a bunch of people at the lower income scale, which is politically toxic. So I don't think that was well thought through. I don't think that Rick Scott was smart to put that particular thing out. The Republicans have rejected it completely. Senator after senator, congressman after congressman saying, nope, don't support that. Not going to happen. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, says not going to happen. We will not do that. Republicans have no interest in raising taxes. It's dead. It's not a real thing, but Biden's trying to say, oh, look, this one bullet point from this one senator could mean that Republicans are going to sweep in and raise middle class taxes. It's not happening. You can chide Scott for giving them that opening for no reason, but it's not actually a realistic thing in any way, shape or form. Unlike, on the other hand, and this is my second point, what the Democrats have actually proposed and voted for. Under President Biden, the Build Back Better plan, which for now at least is going nowhere, thanks to basically one guy, like Joe Manchin killed this thing off. Almost every other Democrat in all of Washington is on the record in favor of Build Back Better. Joe Biden, you woke him up in the middle of the night, told him where he was, reminded him of his name, and you asked him, Would you sign Build Back Better if it showed up on your desk today? He would say yes, and they would. And they would spend $5 trillion more on unbelievable waste and a bunch of left-wing nonsense. Even in the teeth of crazy inflation, they would do it because ideologically they want to spend all this money. They want to grow the government. That is ultimately always their goal. $5 trillion more. And in that package, in the Build Back Better package, There were tax increases for millions of middle-class Americans. Don't take my word for it. Nonpartisan tax accountants and experts, Tax Foundation, Tax Policy Center, which is left-leaning, they all said, yep, there are tax increases in this bill, in this proposal for the middle class. Millions of middle-class households and earners would be paying more in taxes under the Build Back Better bill. Not just that. If Joe Biden wants to talk about tax giveaways to the super rich, that was also in Build Back Better. Isn't that fun? They were adding a tax giveaway in Build Back Better specifically tailored to a key part of their base, namely very rich liberals in blue states. You live in a high-tax state, the uh, the deduction of your state, your, the state deduction, that went away under the tax reform law. They wanted to bring that back in, the state state and local deduction on your taxes. They want to put that back in. That was going to overwhelmingly benefit millionaires and rich people living in blue states, high-tax states. That was a very fun special provision stuck into Build Back Better by the Democrats, a literal tax giveaway to millionaires. While raising taxes on middle-class families to the tune of millions of them, So this is, I think Freud had a word for this. 
I think he called this projection. Joe Biden and the Democrats say the Republicans did a big tax giveaway just for the rich, even though it benefited everyone, the 2017 bill, as I mentioned. Tax giveaway for the rich, and they want to tax the middle class more. The first point is out of context and misleading. The second point is straight up false. But the Democrats themselves have literally done both of both of those things, both in Build Back Better. You say, well, that's not the law. True, because of Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin stopped it. But there was a vote on the House floor on this bill. Five trillion dollars. Tax increases for the middle class. Tax giveaway for blue state millionaires. Every single House Democrat, except for the one guy in Maine, all the other ones, 200 or whatever, saluted and got on board with Nancy Pelosi, even the moderates, they all voted for it, every last one of them. So they can claim, as Joe Biden does, in this tweet yesterday, that Republicans want to raise taxes on the middle class, false. That Republicans gave this thing to the rich and only the rich, false. Not only are we fact-checking them as being wrong about that, we must remind you, and I think Republicans would be nuts not to remind voters heading into the fall of what every House Democrat except for one voted for just last year. Not a hypothetical, not twisting words or coming up with some weird attack out of left field as a desperation Hail Mary ahead of an election that's likely to be lost by the Democrats. This is literally a bill that was drafted exclusively by Democrats, endorsed by virtually every Democrat in Washington, all the way up to the president, and voted for by the entire House Democratic Caucus. That does exactly the things that the Democrats are falsely accusing Republicans of wanting to do or having done. It's amazing. Like, this is about as clean of a hit as you're ever going to get. The Democrats are trying. I hope that the Republicans don't just lie back and say, "Okay, well, with inflation and crime and the border crisis and all this other stuff. The culture wars, you name it, mask mandates, covid, we're going to win this thing. We've got it in the bag. Well, that all might be more than enough, by the way. They could do like nothing else. But in this case, why not fight this lie? Not just push back on the lie, but go on offense. Not only are you lying about us, you actually did the thing. Here's your vote. Defend that. Tax hikes for the middle class. Defend it. Tax giveaways for millionaires. Defend it. That's what you did, Democrats. That's your thing, not us. I got a break. When I come back, one more fact check of another Biden tweet. This time, a blame storm on inflation and gas prices. We will set the record straight when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson, and I continue now with my public service of fact-checking the president of the United States, who had this tweet earlier today. Quote, I know that families are still struggling with higher prices. I grew up in a family where if the price of gas went up, we felt it. Let's be absolutely clear about why prices are high right now. COVID and Vladimir Putin, end quote. Now, there are people out there digging up older tweets of Biden during the campaign being like, what if I'm president, I'm not going to blame people for stuff. I'm going to take responsibility. Voters like, ooh, that sounds good. Ah, I'm a moderate. You know me. Not going to do blame. I'm going to fix COVID. And uh, trust me, they're like, okay. 
And now he's the president. He's like, oh, let's talk about why things are bad. Putin and COVID. Now, here's the problem, as we've discussed before. The inflation on basically everything started almost exactly when Biden took office and went up and up and up inexorably throughout this term so far. For many months, long before Putin, and long after COVID had already started. So the timeline doesn't make sense here. When he took office, the average per gallon price of gas was 239. 239 a gallon. Before Putin invaded, it was up to 353 a gallon. Now it's 406. Putin and COVID are factors. They're not the only two reasons. This is blame shift yet again. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. And joining me here in studio is a dancing Shannon Bream, who is the chief legal correspondent at Fox News, also anchor of Fox News at night, midnight, every evening on Fox News Channel, just after Gutfeld. And I was on Gutfeld mm-hmm. last night, which was fun. Bravo. So that's, thank you. It was fun, as always. You also have the hit podcast, Live in the Bream, and a brand new book. The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak, Lessons on Faith from Nine Biblical Families. So this is the follow-on to your previous runaway bestseller, The Women of the Bible Speak. Now we're getting more specific about the types of women, Mm -hmm. mothers and daughters in particular. And this book is doing incredibly well. Again, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, our viewers, our listeners, um, I think they were hungry for this. We were surprised, if we're being honest, about how well it connected. But I heard so much, um, and you probably have too, the last couple of years, people, you know, they're anxious and afraid and going through loss. And I think a lot of people said to me, you know, I'm trying to reconnect with my faith or figure this thing out. And maybe they're intimidated to pick up the Bible and start flipping through like, you know, First Samuel, First Kings or something. Um, but they'll read these stories and feel like, gosh, these women are relatable. I can relate to this. So You're what sort of helping mean? them into the Bible. Here. Yeah, so I hope like so. Gateway drug seems like the wrong analogy to make here. <laughs> wait, wait. How about this is a, maybe a minor league? We like yeah, like they're double A, triple A, and then we'll get them into the bigs. Into the big leagues. Yeah. Very good. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And people can order a copy, pick up a copy from Shannon Bream, The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible. Speak available right now. Now, I saw that you were talking about this and you were posting about this. The whole mask thing. Mm-hmm. Now it's an option. We mm-hmm. opened the show talking about it. There are people who insist, and there's this AP poll being circulated, a majority of people want the mandate in place. Only 24% don't want the mandate in place. I'm kind of calling BS on this poll because I know it's anecdotal, but you're seeing actual behavior of Mm -hmm. human beings, which is very different than that. Here's another one. We played a few examples yesterday. Here's a flight attendant. I believe this is on an American Airlines flight. A flight attendant walking down the center aisle mm-hmm. of the plane with a garbage bag collecting people's masks if they wanted to throw them away. And he is singing. It's an African-American guy. Beautiful voice. Great voice. Singing about <laughs> throwing away masks. And people were laughing and, like, giving him high fives and clapping. Here's just a little snippet. Cut five. Now, the Associated Press poll says that's only 24% of the plane who's appreciating this new option. I don't know. What are you Mm. seeing? What are you hearing? What was your experience on the train? 
Well, I actually flew. Oh, you flew? Okay. Yeah, so I can give you first-hand experience. Oh, very good. Hang on. Uh, we'll we get a Fox News alert here. This, we've got <laughs> Shannon Bream, who has a first-hand account of her airplane flight and the masking. Okay. Oh, yeah. Reporting live on the scene. <laughs> So I went to DCA, the Washington, you know, Reagan Airport, which is technically in suburban Virginia, which is why I don't think that airport will come back to mass because some of the individual airports are doing. We'll see how the governor feels about that. But I said, all right, before I go in, what is the masking, non-masking ratio going to be? It was about 90 percent masks. Oh, that doesn't so this is DC. You know, DC. this is not a surprise. So I, you know, I'm going through the airport. I'm looking around. I got on the plane. Uh, there, I think there's more of a, ma- a mix on my plane. But the crew, there was one attendant wearing a mask, and none of the other pilots or crew were wearing masks. So they've dealt with it for a couple of years. It seems like some of them are just ready to go. But then while we're on the plane, we find out that LaGuardia and JFK and and other you know, portions of New York are still going to enforce the mask mandate. So I'm thinking, who's going to tell people when they walk down the jetway to get off the plane and now you put your mask back on? Well, apparently nobody told them because in LaGuardia, there was much more sort of a 50-50 mix of people wearing and not wearing. So I don't know if they're planning enforcement of that. I don't know how you put the toothpaste back in the tube. D.C. to New York. Right. You get on a plane from like Tampa to Houston. I bet no masks. I think that's a a different look. Yeah. And so I was just curious your thoughts there Mm -hmm. and – We'll see how it continues to play out. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, DOJ saying, well, if, you know, CDC recommends, well, of course, CDC is going to recommend masks that they may go ahead with it. But I don't know if the Biden administration wants to do the political calculus on that, because all the cheering and the screaming of people and listen, plenty of people still wearing masks and bravo. If you have a reason, do it. Um, I think it's going to be hard to unring that bell. And tell people, like, nope, mask back on. And if you actually believe that it's the right thing and the science and politically popular, which is what some of them are claiming, then by all means, try to bring it back. Go for it. See how that ends. I mean, if you're confident, I'm confident in the other direction. Let's see how that goes in November. Yeah. That's that's my message to the Democrats just uh, from Free advice truly. from Guy Benson yes, I always for have, Democrats. I always have their best interests at heart, obviously, the Democrats. Follow whatever Party. he says. Uh, let's talk about the Supreme Court in our remaining time here, Shannon. Give us just quickly the timeline. Justice Breyer is still on the court. Mm-hmm. There's some big cases coming mm-hmm. up. They'll be announced, what, May and June. Mm-hmm. And then when is the retirement date and when does Judge Justice Jackson mm-hmm. become officially Justice Jackson with the robe and is sitting in on right. cases and stuff? Still judge at this point, but has her commission and her confirmation in hand. He said he wants to finish out the term. That's usually the last week of June, the first week of July. And the minute that they're done, usually from the bench, often that's the day we get the retirement. They say all the cases are cleared for this term. That's the end of the term. And if somebody's going to retire, that's often when they do it. Knowing he's already done that, he would then step down and say, I'm officially done. So mm-hmm. by early July, she will officially be justice. And she gets sworn in. Yep. There are two different that. oaths. Yep. And they do the whole thing. The, the timeline that you just described was, if I'm recalling correctly, kind of what Kennedy did mm-hmm. and which touched off the whole Kavanaugh situation, yes, which we, we have not nearly enough time to uh, <laughs> retread all of that. Give us a quick primer, if you would, on the big cases, because mm-hmm. I mean, we're close. We are. We're in we're in late April within yep. the next two months. Mm-hmm. Some big cases are coming down, handed down decisions. What are we waiting for here? We are still waiting for the huge abortion case out of Mississippi, which bans most abortions after 15 weeks. 
it's not only about that state law, which I think, based on the arguments, they look like they're going to uphold, but it's do they go further and chip away at Roe and its progeny? I don't know. We're getting opinions actually tomorrow, the court has announced. So it could come anytime between now and the end of the term. That's the really big one we're waiting for. Um, there's also a gun case uh, about carry permits and that kind of thing outside the home here in New York. And then on Monday, they're actually going to hear the case of Coach Kennedy, the football coach who was fired after praying on the 50-yard line after the games, after he was told not to do it by the school district. So So, uh, a religious liberty First Amendment case. Yeah, they hear that Monday. And would that be decided in this same batch? It'll be done by the end of June. So abortion and guns and religious liberty. Yeah. Oh, my. And they've already got some biggies for the fall coming up, too. Like what? Um, the, uh, a web designer who d- doesn't want to create web designs for things that violate her religious beliefs. It's kind of a follow-up of the masterpiece like the, the cake. cake stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. So some heavy-duty mm-hmm. cultural issues being adjudicated at the court with a 6-3 to three or a 5-4 conservative majority, depending on sort of the day and the coalition, with a brand-new progressive justice joining the bench after this term. Correct. It'll be Breyer on all of these cases, mm-hmm. often – Linking arms, I would imagine, with two other justices, Sotomayor and Kagan. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what the other six do. We'll be watching very closely, no one more closely than Shannon Bream, our friend and colleague here at Fox News. Check out the new book, Mothers and the Daughters of the Bible Speak. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, guys. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. Still to come in our next hour, the happy hour, Bill Hemmer in studio, our Fox News colleague. He's going to be here. So yesterday we were chatting with Joe Concha about this woman, Taylor Lorenz, who is a journalist, quote unquote, at The Washington Post. And her job, I guess, is to sort of talk about online harassment, but also engage in it under the guise of journalism and to talk a lot about herself. She seems to be at the center of a lot of the stories that she's attached to, which is usually a red flag. There are a lot of red flags about this particular individual. I'll just say that. As I mentioned yesterday, I try to avoid talking about her, thinking about her. I think generally she's a toxic actor in the media landscape, and I'm just not that interested. But because she's wandered into this new controversy It's a big story, so we decided to cover it. She doxxed, if you want to use that term. She identified the proprietor of an account called Libs of TikTok on Twitter, where this person, a woman it turns out, a real estate agent from Brooklyn, Jewish woman, she just goes through TikTok and finds left-wingers saying some crazy left-wing things. Often these are educators and teachers saying things that are extremely radical and extreme on sexuality and gender issues and other stuff. And she simply sees this publicly posted content. These people post it themselves. They want this to be seen. And then she just tweets it. And this, I guess, is in Taylor Lorenz's mind, dangerous harassment. And putting the LGBT community in danger and all the buzzwords that they always use. And as Ben Shapiro was noting on Twitter earlier, if you read the Washington Post story that she wrote about all of this and people are speculating someone basically handed her a hit job on this woman and she published it. 
she actually doesn't describe accurately with any context the type of content that lives of TikTok highlights and amplifies. Again, nothing that they stole, nothing that was supposed to be private, nothing that was intended to be out of the public view. It was intended to be in the public view by the creators of the content. But in this story, Lorenz just sort of glosses over what the content actually is, which is quite extreme and out there in a lot of cases. And she doesn't describe it in some cases at all or accurately. She does it in this sort of glossed over, sanitized, airbrushed way that is as friendly to the left wing perspective as possible because that's what she does. I mean, this is who she is. She's part of the wider journalistic community that's very left-wing. She just has this special little niche in the online space. Now, the woman who runs Libs of TikTok, again, just amplifying this stuff, she identified her in the story by name, identified who she is. This reporter showed up at one of the relatives of this woman at her house wearing her mask outdoors just to ask some questions. She was sending sort of these, I'd say, journalistically menacing DMs to people saying, hi, are you related to, are you involved in this account? Are you connected to this account? We're about to do a story that would implicate you, if so, in causing danger and harm to LGBT people. Do you have comment? We're going to press soon. Asking people for comment is not unusual. That's a journalistic best practice. Doing it sort of like, hey, you're about to be called a bigot, basically. Get back to me now. It feels kind of like a form of extortion, actually. So there was a huge online controversy about this yesterday. She, of course, is claiming victimhood, which is what she does, where she's out there bullying people, calling it journalism. Then when she gets blowback for what she's doing, that is in fact bullying, she says. So, of course, she's the victim, and people that she victimizes, well, that's fine because it's journalism. Her most recent target, this woman who runs Libs of TikTok, was on Tucker Carlson last night, called into that show. I saw that she's been hired now by the Babylon Bee, our friends at the Bee, Seth Dillon, my childhood friend who runs that outfit. They're still in Twitter jail, by the way, because they wouldn't delete one of their tweets from their satire website. That's where we're at right now. I don't think that there was any Taylor Lorenz story about that, how concerning that was, because I'd wager that she supports that type of censorship because it's often just ideological and very, very personal based on her feelings, her emotions. That seems to be the way that this woman does business, and she just burns one professional bridge after another as she hops from publication to publication, then trashes the publication that she just left for the new one. Currently, it's the Washington Post. We'll see how long that lasts. When this whole thing blew up yesterday, there were people saying the Washington Post is going to put out a statement specifically about Taylor Lorenz by the end of the day, because if they don't, she'll start publicly dragging them for not having her back because it's always about her. And sure enough, last evening... We got this from the Washington Post, from their senior managing editor put out by their chief communications officer at the Post. Here's the quote in their official statement from this person, Cameron Barr. Taylor Lorenz is an accomplished and diligent journalist whose reporting methods comport entirely with the Washington Post's professional standards. 
Then they name the woman who runs Libs of TikTok in their statement. So they name her again. In her management of the Libs of TikTok Twitter account and in media interviews has had significant impact on public discourse and her identity had become public knowledge on social media. We did not publish or link to any details about her private life. End quote. That is false. They linked to real estate documents that included this woman's name and home address. And when they got dragged for it correctly online, they finally took it down. It is a lie to say that they did not publish or link to any details about her personal life. Yes, they did. Her home address. That was on their website. They took it down, and then they deny it in their statement about this as they defend themselves. You wonder why the media has a credibility problem when in mopping up a situation that they're getting criticized for with, I think, reasonable questions about the journalistic ethics and newsworthiness of this whole story. And in the statement defending this self-absorbed bully, they have a factually false sentence in a statement that only has what three or four sentences in it. One of them is just demonstrably false. They did publish that information and they linked to it. And that was a form of doxing because it's her home address. There's plenty of interviews where Taylor Lorenz goes around giving interviews about herself, which is what she does, where she's bemoaning that her cell phone number got out and the harassment that she deals with and all of that, always the victim. And look, it sucks when that happens. It's happened to me. But here was this information either deliberately or sloppily included in a link in their story. And then the Post actually puts out a statement denying that any such thing ever happened when we all saw what happened. Embarrassing for the Washington Post. Maybe they rushed this out to make sure that their employee didn't do what she always does, which is start bullying and attacking her own publication. If they're insufficiently obsequious about her work and coming to her defense or whatever. I will leave you with this soundbite. This was a few months ago. Taylor Lorenz talking about the need for boundaries when it comes to this sort of thing. Maybe Taylor Lorenz might want to take the advice of Taylor Lorenz from time to time. Cut 26. It's called boundaries, people. It's called boundaries. And I'm not talking like Rachel Hollis bullshit where like she made her a whole thing about her relationship and then, you know, she divorced and didn't want to talk about it. I just mean average content creators are entitled to have parts of their offline life that you won't know about. And you don't need to go on some deep investigative journey. Ah. Also, I'm not sub-talking anyone. This is just something I've noticed in the comments. And as a reporter, people are constantly asking me to dig up weird details about people's lives. So yeah, let's make 2022 a year of boundaries. Oh yeah, the year of boundaries. Sounds good, Tay. Maybe she's sub-talking herself. That was a TikTok post, by the way. Maybe she's sub-talking herself. These content creators don't need all this information published about them. Oh, you mean like their name when they're anonymous or their home address? Would that fall into that category, Taylor? Hopefully this is the last I'm talking about this. I don't I think like my quota of Taylor Lorenz content is fulfilled in my mind. But if the story takes another turn, we'll follow it. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show, the happy hour coming up. Bill Hammer in studio straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Yeah, it's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every day. That's our show, and this is the final hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious, refreshing, alcoholic. So 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. They are expanding big time, and there are new states coming on the board soon. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. And you can check out all the information there, including where it's sold near you. You can also order online. Our website is family-friendly, all ages, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free on demand every day, growing, thanks to all of you, GuyBensonShow.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch me tonight on Kennedy. I'm sitting in for the great lady tonight and tomorrow. Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Set your DVRs or we can see you there live. Well, joining me now here in studio in New York is Bill Hammer, co-host of America's Newsroom, Every weekday from 9 to 11 a.m. I think I'm joining the crew tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Welcome. Fox News Channel. Also, his podcast is Hammer Time at foxnewspodcast.com. Bill, it's great to see you as always. Thank you, Guy. Good to be back with you. Before we get into some of the topics that I had here on the rundown, just before we went on the air, you were talking about this student loan forgiveness Mm -hmm. story. It's a burr under your saddle. I think you're not alone well, on this. I, I just, I, I think it's a moral hazard if we go ahead and do it. And I know 40,000 of the millions are going to see relief based on this latest decision on behalf of the uh, uh, the commander in chief. I, you, you did a deal. You signed a contract. Fulfill it. Yeah. And I, I think this is the thing. And I feel almost obligated to say I never incurred student debt because I had grandparents who worked very hard Mm -hmm. and had some money ready for me. I'm incredibly blessed and lucky for that. I went to an expensive college and I never want to seem like I'm just wagging my finger at other people who want help when I didn't personally need it. However, we also made decisions and calculations in my family based on money that was available or not. Mm -hmm. No one put a gun to anyone's head saying you have to take out this amount of loan to go to this school for that degree or what have you, most Americans don't go to college. Most Americans don't take out loans for this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Americans do take out loans and then work their asses off to pay them back. That's right. I mean, just in my circumstances, I was 18 years old and I had to learn about interest rates. Well, that was a good education for me. And I had to figure out, you know, I'm Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. How much did I need? How much could I get? And how was I going to figure out during the summer months or the, the, the winter months to work a job and... Start paying $10,000 in loans back. Now, that may not sound like a, a lot of money now, but, you know, 30, 40 years ago it was. That's some real it, money. It was a lot of money to me, and you know, I was making nine grand a year. It's actually still a lot of money <laughs> so, to me. It sounds like a lot of money. So, I mean, I, I, I had to find a way. I, I just think, look, if we have a system where you're required to sign a contract, you have to fulfill that contract. They don't just disappear. They don't just go up and smoke. That's not the life lesson you want to teach. And if it does go up in smoke, the reason that it's happening is because politicians have decided that they want to sort of buy you off for a vote. But then you have a lot of people, more people, in fact, I would hazard a guess, more people will be resentful that they are now being asked to pay to fulfill Mm -hmm. 
your contract. It's another moral hazard. I agree with you. There's tentacles on the story that are all bad. Yes. You signed a deal, fulfill your commitment. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll have middle-class and upper-middle-class families whose kids will benefit from this. And then you'll have, like, working-class mm-hmm. families who will be paying for it. Yeah. One of the extraordinary things about the story that I don't think a lot of people understand is of those students who are have student loan debt, they come from families that are in the upper income. Right. That's the thing. Or they attend Ivy League universities where you know they're going to get employment anyway and they're going to have an instant salary where they can't afford to pay – where they can afford – pay it back yeah no there's you're right any way you look at this except from a pure sort of politics calculation it's bad and you know i would say even politically it could be bad but economically it's a disaster and you came in just you're on fire about this i just let's just play by the rules yeah which which they agreed to (laughs) just change the rules in midstream it's bad Bad policy. So, meanwhile, anyway, anyway, thank you for letting me get that. No, of course, off my chest. Here's I, a very different I feel topic. Ten pounds lighter. Okay, good. <laughs> Hammer. We bring Hammer on to talk about what really whatever he wants. And this was on top of mind today, and it is a big story. Here's an interesting talker that I've heard non-political people discussing: Netflix mm. losing hundreds of thousands of subscribers, which is sort of like okay. The stock price just plummets, like thirty-two yeah, percent yesterday. A, a big tumble and now there's questions about are they going to crack down on the password sharing stuff that i know hypothetically a lot of people do you also have this just explosion of these streaming services where there are it feels like dozens of them now and everyone's like oh the new hit shows on this one and all of a sudden people who cut the cord to save money are just cha-ching 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 paying for all this stuff are you a Netflix person, do you, um, which yep. of these services do you have? I am a Netflix guy. Um, I'm an HBO Max guy. Okay. Um, an Apple TV guy. Okay. I love this topic. On the five New Year's Eve show, one of my many predictions, we were supposed to come with one. I, I had seven. <laughs> one of mine was that by the end of 2022, there would be fewer paid services than there are at the end of 2021. I, right now, it looks like I might be on track. I mean, mm. I see what's going on with CNN Plus, and yeah. I see what's happening with Netflix. Um, I never bought the stock, but I was always kicking myself. Actually, I did buy the stock at 110, and a week later, it was at 100. Then I started learning about the company, and I thought, this is all smoke and mirrors. They're not making any money, and I sold it. Then the damn thing went to 450. Um, and, <laughs> the and, and now it's not back ideal. down again. What I was looking into, guy, was that subscriber growth is what they've always sold. And as long as every quarter they can show that the subscription up, growth up, keeps up. going up. Well, what they found on this quarter, they had 200,000 fewer subscribers. Mm-hmm. But what the company has pitched for the past two or three years is what they would sell to the international audience. And the growth there was phenomenal because they were getting in the markets like India. I, huge up uh, upside there. They're saying... In the last quarter, the fourth quarter, they lost 200,000 subscribers. They expect to lose 2 million subscribers globally in the current quarter. That's the problem. That's a problem. You're going to lose 2.2 million over a period of six months? That's not good. I will just say in my own life, I do find myself going to Netflix less frequently. Okay. And there are some shows on Netflix that I like. 
that I've watched. I know they're adding stuff. I just don't know if their content is at the level that it should be for that price point and for sort of that reputation that they've built. Like when Squid Games comes back, I'm going to want to watch that. When the next thing of like British Bake Off comes on, I'm going to want to watch that. There are things that would keep me, I think, subscribed to Netflix. But there's a show on Hulu that we just did the trial for just to watch that. Apple TV is another one. There's just so yeah. many Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. I just bought this thing called BritBox there's, to watch a too foreign many. show. It's a there's lot. There's too many. You can't keep track of it. And you can't keep track of your passwords. I believe. <laughs> that is also uh, a problem. I'll make another projection here. I believe the streaming winner, when all this is said and done, two years from now or five years from now, whenever, whenever things start to settle, is going to be Apple TV because it is so easy to get on your phone. It's right there. If you have and, an iPhone. Well, I mean, most people do A have an iPhone. People, I do. But, but the, I mean, they won the war with Samsung. They did it. As for Netflix, I wanted to see Tiger King. That was a... That was a yeah, but the follow-up one... Was, the f- uh, like the new ha- one? Haven't watched Me it. Me neither. And I, I wanted to see the, t- uh, the the Michael Jordan special. All, all these were like COVID streaming projects. The Jordan so one was great. Th- those are really good. I-, I can't say that the quality is that great. What are your Apple TV shows? Um, I'm watching the morning show now. I resisted for a long time because it it's sort of your too much reminded me of close work. to home. I, you know, I like it when Tim Cook sends me an alert on a Friday and says, check out the new show that just came out. Now, some of them are good guy and some of them are not. You do Ted Lasso. Um, I love, I think season one of Ted Lasso is absolute genius. Yes. I think season two is just six of 10. We still need season, to finish season two. We love season one. Season one was a 10 out of 10. Have you season seen two, a little less. Have you seen Tehran on Apple TV? I have not. Oh, Bill. Tehran as in Tehran, Iran? Yes. Uh-huh. So Tehran is the name of the show, and its premise is there's an Israeli spy who basically by accident is stuck in Tehran, and they're trying to get her out, but then they're like, hang on, can we use her? And it's like a race against time, and it's good stuff. It's mostly in Farsi uh-huh. and in Hebrew, but it's all subtitles. Sorry, the Israelis were wondering if they could use her, or the Iranians were wondering? The Israelis. So the, uh-huh. at first, like, we got to get her out. And they're like, well, hang on. That's good. She's there. What if it's good? Uh-huh. So, and I think now, now, season I just, one is done. Season I want to clear up something, okay? So Friday, Tim Cook sends out an alert uh-huh. that this new series has just dropped. It's called Roar. Okay. Nicole Kidman and some other. So I, I start watching it. I'm on a plane. They're like 25 minutes long. The thing, the morning show is 57 minutes an episode, entirely too long for my ADHD brain to, to exist. <laughs> um, Roar is 25 minutes each. I got through two shows. I think it's just absolute garbage. <laughs> so you're not I, a fan. I, I, I'm not a fan. You're I'm not, not cheering about Roar. Now, maybe it comes back in a couple months and you say, hey, Hemmer, you told me about this. And the word on the street is great, which I go by a lot. Okay. Like if people, if there's chatter about a movie, I want to check. So it you're out. a buzz guy. You're going to yes. go and okay, yeah. that's fair. I find myself resisting buzz until I can't anymore, mm-hmm. and then I'm late to the party on stuff. I'm like, wow, have you seen this amazing show that came out three years ago that you all saw back then? Yeah. It's great. They're like, yeah, <laughs> welcome. So I try to get ahead of some of them now, so I'm not constantly embarrassing myself. On that note, Bill Hemmer, let's pause. Let's take a quick break because when we come back, I want to shift to another news story. I know you're a sports guy. I'm also a sports guy. This is geopolitics meets athletic competition. 
I have some thoughts. I don't know if you're going to agree or disagree, but I'll run it past you as soon as we come back. Bill Hammer, my guest. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show from New York City. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour with us, Bill Hemmer, here in studio. One more topic here, Bill. Totally unrelated, but this one gives me a little bit of queasiness. You see the reports at Wimbledon can be barring Russian players yeah. from competing. Uh, you don't like that? I don't like it. And initially the reports were they were going to say you can compete if you denounce, which I hate even more because I am 100% on the side of the Ukrainians. I've been banging on Russia and Putin. I don't like the people who are sort of making excuses for Putin. And I'm 100% blue and yellow team Ukraine here. It's fairly black and white to me. However, I don't know that the international community should be collectively punishing the Russian people. I don't like compelled speech saying, if you want to compete as an athlete, you need to say words that we want you to say. I don't like that in general. And then to say, okay, well, we're not going to do a litmus test anymore. None of you can compete because that's where you were born or that's your nationality, that's your passport. I don't think that that's fair. Uh, Do whatever you want to the Russian government and the oligarchs. It's interesting. On the individual point that you just made there, one of the best players in the world is a Russian man. He's ranked eighth, I think, internationally. So he would be affected by this. He was the one who wrote on that camera. Right. Stop the no war. war. Yeah, so no, he, no he war. did the thing, right? He, he did the thing that everyone wants him to do, which I give him a ton of credit for. That's a ballsy thing, given what's going on back home and dissent being stifled and all of that. But even that, I guess, would not be sufficient to yeah. be pure well, enough. Apparently, it's not for Wimbledon. To compete right at Wimbledon. I don't uh, like that. Um, a couple points I would make here. The Boston Marathon prevented Russian and Belarusian runners this year. Yeah, I and if Wimbledon does that, I wonder if the U.S. Open does it late summer. And if Wimbledon does that, I wonder if the French Open will do it um, coming up shortly this What's summer What's the also. point of that, though? Like, um, what are look, we doing here? I, I, I'm not sure. Before we get ahead of it, let's just take what's in front of us. And what's in front of us is that the All England Club in Wimbledon has said, you're not welcome here. Well, think about all the Russian oligarchs who own all that property in central London. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they're, they're stashing cash everywhere. I'm fine with the British government going after that. That To me, that yeah. is more fair game. Okay, so here's the other thing. You've got mm-hmm. famous Chinese tennis players, including one who said she was raped and then they sort of forced her to recant. Weird story. Disturbing story. Uh, are we going to allow Chinese players to continue to compete, even though there's a genocide happening in that country? I, I just... I'm not sure if there's a limiting principle here and an actual goal here that makes sense to I, me. I think you raise a good point. When I initially saw the article, I was like, okay, this is interesting because it continues to spread. And I think the current war is is about is about to show everybody that this is going to go on for a long, sustained period of you time. You think so? Yes. It's going to be trench warfare in the southeast. That's what mm. they're both setting up for. And whether or not the U.S. and the NATO allies can get enough weapons into the right part of the country in time enough will dictate whether or not the Ukrainians can hang on in their trenches. But they did a pretty darn good job in 2014, and they had jack squat back then. And they've been dug in for eight years. Everybody says now that the Russians know the terrain. The Ukrainians know the terrain. And they've been kind of winning so far elsewhere. Well, my theory on is my theory on the case 
is that the U.S. policy was designed to enable Ukraine to fight to a draw. And I, I think that in all likelihood that is where we are headed. But with regard to your larger point, I, I think you raised some interesting points. I did not see it from that point of view. Um, if these were Russian tennis players that were also oligarchs, okay, I, I think we could all find common ground there. Sure. But if you're just going to suspend the individual because they come from a certain country, then maybe that's not the uh, proper course of action. What they have also said, I think in the, the ATP, and there's also an international tennis organization too. I don't know what that name is. Uh, international Tennis Federation. There it is, ITF. They've allowed these players to go ahead and compete. How did you have that on that piece of paper? Because they told you, just, me, you look down and you have the name of well, the organization uh, written on a piece of paper the, somehow? The ATP um, in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, is one of the best events you can go to every year. It's in Mason, Ohio, across the street from Kings Island Amusement Park. It's just a fun, casual, cool event. It Tennis one, is great. And you're a former sports guy. I am too. It was one of the best events to attend every year. I have deep affection for the ATP, but the ATP is allowing them right now because I wanted the ATP in Mason, Ohio is the precursor to the U.S. Open. It's a hard court surface, just like here in Queens, uh, Queens, New York, hard surface. And so what all the tennis players did is they would get a warm up tournament at the ATP in Ohio before they came. Ah, So you would see the greatest the greatest tennis players in the world would come to small little Mason, Ohio. It's like, oh, it was Pete Sampras. It was Pete Sampras. It was Andre Agassi. It was Jimmy Connors. Um, who am I forgetting? The, the good one. Mats Wielander, if you want to go back that far. Boris Becker. They all came through Mason, Ohio. The ATP is allowing these players to still compete, but they won't let you fly the flag or play the national anthem. Huh. I'm more comfortable with that than this reported Wimbledon decision. I'll just leave it at that because we are out of time, so I have to leave it at that. But it's Bill Hemmer, our guest, America's Newsroom, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern, every weekday on Fox News Channel. Hemmer Time is the podcast. Thank you, brother. See you on TV tomorrow. Thank you, guys. That's Bill Hemmer here on The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue here in the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, let's go back and listen to part of my conversation earlier with Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. We talked about a number of issues earlier today related to the law. Here's a portion of that conversation with Andy McCarthy. We just opened here for the second consecutive day talking about the mask mandates for transportation modes and the judge and the decision down in Florida, which is now affecting the whole country, at least for the moment, and the White House slash Biden administration's decision-making process about what to do next. So I just want to ask you from a legal perspective, number one, what do you think of the judge's decision on substance? A lot of the, as I mentioned, a lot of the reaction to it has been about her age, who appointed her, the American Bar Association review of her work, not the actual substance of the ruling that she handed down. Uh, That's number one. And then number two, what are your thoughts on the administration's response to it, which strikes me as sort of muddled and trying to split the baby and kind of confused? Maybe you can shed some light on it. Yeah, I think, Guy, that in a bottom-line way, the judge is right in the four corners of the case. 
but I disagree with her on her uh, textual analysis that the statute didn't authorize the mandate. So let me – I don't want to hit everybody with a bunch of lawyerly gobbledygook. I think you have to separate her ruling, which, by the way, is a very good workmanlike legal piece of work. I happen to disagree with her, but I don't think her point is uh, is frivolous. But there's two separate things about the opinion. One is, does the statute, the relevant statute in the uh, U.S. Code, authorize the CDC to issue the mandate? I think she has a very exacting and I think too rigid uh textual interpretation of the statute, which to my mind clearly allows the CDC to issue this kind of mandate. And uh, to your initial point, we're not talking here now about whether this is wise policy and whether masks are effective. The question is simply the legal issue of does the statute authorize the CDC to do this? I think it does. She says it doesn't. Um, the second question in the case is procedural, which is that the, oh, the Biden administration completely ignored the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act that they have a notice and comment period before they put a regulation like this into effect. And there's no excusing what they did. They just basically arrogantly said, uh, this is such common sense. Uh, you know, why should we invite public comment? Obviously, they didn't want public comment because there's a lot of questions about this policy. Right. But it might not be quite so commonsensical. Right. And, and regardless of whether their motive was good or bad, the, the fact of the matter is they didn't comply with the statute. So what I think it comes down to, Guy, and this is where I am really struggling with this, because what this comes down to is what should the remedy be? And as you remember, uh, constitutional conservatives, Republicans throughout the Trump administration wailed long and loud, and I was one of them, about this idea that unaccountable district judges in a single district uh, in the United States often forum shopped to get the cases in front of them, Right. Uh, nullifying policy of the executive branch that Congress had explicitly committed to the discretion and the judgment of the president. So I don't think we can take a position that these nationwide injunctions or, or what effectively what she did here is nationwide. Well, and by the way, Andy, this also cuts in the opposite direction as well. Liberals cheered those decisions for the previous four years. And now a lot of those same people are very angry that a single Trump appointed judge just in Florida can impose this on the whole country. Everyone just seems to have switched sides. Yeah, well, I haven't. So, Good. <laughs> Good. you know, I I I. I I uh, I don't think that we can take a principled position on this that that, uh, you know, if if our position is that if we like the policy outcome, it's we cheer the judge. And if we don't like it, we complain about unaccountable judges. So to my mind, what she should do, guy, and I don't I don't completely foreclose the possibility that there are some cases where it might be appropriate for a judge to issue a nationwide injunction, depending on you know how fundamental the right at stake was. But I think in the vast run of cases, the judge should just decide the case with respect to the four corners of the case with respect to the litigants in the case. So she should set aside the uh, the mandate because of the Administrative Procedure Act violation. She should do that 
in connection with the private plaintiffs who brought this case. My full interview with Andy McCarthy available online at GuyBensonShow.com, along with the entire podcast, the whole show, every day for free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. well, we had a night on the town, the Guy Benson Show team here in New York City last night. And while we were dining, we learned something new about cookie producer Christine. That story next when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch from the Big Apple here in New York for the rest of the week. I'm in for Kennedy tonight and tomorrow. Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Our website here on the radio show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our online home, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day, the whole show. By the way, before we launch into our home stretch topic, shout out to our friends at 106.3 Extra in Atlanta. Can you believe that it's been one year since that station launched? One of our great affiliates down there in Hotlanta where I helped deliver a World Series championship to the Braves last year. I'll just throw that out there yet again with my incredible, tremendous first pitch last July. But they have been just a joy to work with. The station didn't exist. This was not a talk station until a year ago this week. We've been a part of it from day one. So grateful to be on the ground floor. They've been growing. Their numbers are amazing. And we are looking forward to a great future with our friends down there in Atlanta. So bravo to Dickie Broadcasting and Matt and the whole team. I know producer Christine is chomping at the bit to get down there. She is just like nodding almost violently through the glass there. She wants to come on one of my trips to Atlanta. Maybe we'll make that happen. We'll see. We'll see. So, Christine, we were out last night. Whole team. First of all, we went down to Gutfeld for the taping. You guys were the studio audience. Like, just you. The audience is coming back to Gutfeld starting next month in May in their brand new studio with something like 90 seats. I'm hearing it is a stunning studio that they're building just for the Gutfeld show. So I'm excited. I think I'll be back on the schedule in mid-May to join the panel. But this was the the old studio, the original studio for Gutfeld, exclamation point. And you guys were there. Fun experience. Did you enjoy being the studio audience? You could hear some uh, some cookie cackles in the background on TV last night. I, I, I could hear a tiny bit last night because I did watch when I got home. But, no, it was that was super cool. It was fun to watch you. Uh, you were very, very funny. Um, it was just a cool experience. I don't think I've really watched much TV taping. So it was definitely a cool experience. And I was with my best friends. So. I, I think Quiet Wyatt's going to be joining me in studio tonight for Kennedy. And that's a very cool spot as well. So Wyatt will be up on the third floor with me a little bit later on. Anything that surprised you, Wyatt, being in there? I know you'd been at some of the Gutfeld weekend taping, so maybe this wasn't as new of an experience for you, but any surprises for anyone last night? No. Everyone, everyone's just shaking their heads. It went basically as expected. By the way, if you all watched last night's episode of Gutfeld, I must report to you that the guy who was stuck in the elevator, that was not a made-up bit. That was real. One of their writers was stuck in an elevator for hours last night here in the building. He's out. He survived. He's fine. But I heard the elevator actually fell 
several floors, then stopped, and he was stuck there for a few hours. Gene is his name. Gene is fine, which we're grateful to find out because that was kind of a running theme throughout the show. And people were tweeting at me and texting me like, hey, is that real? Yeah, that actually happened. Gene's fine. Very fun show. And then after the show, we went to dinner. Sort of here in Midtown, a little bit farther east, we went to uh, one of my favorite restaurants in the city. Had a lovely time, at least I did. Seemed like everyone enjoyed themselves. And we were just, you know, having a cocktail and having some spinach and artichoke dip. And then just casually dropped into the conversation. Christine just mentions that one time that she was kicked out of her sewing club. And I said, hold the phone. Stop right there. She just, like, wanted to breeze right past it. I'm like, no, no. There's a story here that we need to know and why it was just, like, cracking up. You got thrown out of a neighborhood knitting club? Yeah, it was like a knitting slash sewing club. And I, when I got the invite, thought it was just code for moms who want to drink on a Sunday. (laughs) And apparently these people really wanted to sew and knit. They were very serious Are you aware that sewing involves, like, precision and sharp needles and things? Probably elements that do not really lend themselves to heavy drinking, which was your thought process here, I guess. So I figured that out pretty quickly. I also figured it out when nobody else was partaking in the delicious wine that I brought. So you brought the booze, of course opened I did. the booze, drank the booze, and everyone was just sort of like, hmm. Nobody else drank. Like maybe uh, C. Diddy here doesn't really understand how seriously we take the knitting and the sewing. Yeah, they had like an instructor come. They hired somebody, and then I had to give that instructor money. I didn't know we were paying someone to teach us how. What what did you sew, or what did you try to knit? So the first thing, um, I went to two um, meetings. So the first meeting, we did a— Wait, you went back? Well, the first one, we did a Christmas stocking. And the only reason I went back is I I don't think they probably wanted me the second time, but— I kind of said, like, this was so much fun. I didn't know that they didn't find me being there as fun as I thought it was, <laughs> drinking. These are some of your other, quote, best friends, right? <laughs> yeah. So you went back a second time. Yeah, and then that's when it really went downhill. Um, I couldn't even, like, help form. We were supposed to be making aprons. But I'm like, what's the apron for? Cooking? It, yeah, I don't wear I, – I don't cook much, and I don't wear an apron. Uh, I couldn't even it, – it, it, it didn't even – I don't think I sewed one stitch. It was like all pinned by the time the class was over and we were taking the group picture. So I had to like hold it where the pins were to pretend. So you had a fake apron basically Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. it seem like. So did they formally kick you out being like you are officially disinvited or were you just sort of ghosted? So this was even sadder. A A few weeks later, they were all together on and they took a picture on Facebook and they posted it. Like they were back doing more sewing. Yes. And you didn't get that email. I didn't get the email that we were meeting again. Yeah, they were like, take Christine off the list. <laughs> were you actually upset or were you just sort of glad that you didn't have to go back and pretend? Well, it's not nice to be excluded from something. I mean, I was never going to sew. That was never an option for me. What were these so people? Funny. Were these people who crossed over with you in other friend groups? Like, could you still socialize with them in other settings? They just didn't want you to be... Kind of a disruptive presence at their sewing situation. Well, two of the girls, yes, that okay. I, I did socialize with. But so that's I was fine. kind of upset that they didn't tell me about it either, that they were going back. Would you have preferred them formally exclude you? I want the 
No, I don't. I don't think they should have excluded me. First of all, like how? Am I, what, what's but so you wrong? You didn't do the sewing. So why couldn't I just sit there and be the entertainment? Because I think sewing, and I know nothing about sewing or knitting, but especially sewing, I think requires attention, mm-hmm. not distraction, and not boozy sloshing distraction. I wasn't sloshing that much. Um, I really, <laughs> truly believed when I said yes to this that we this was just an excuse for moms to get out of the house for a couple hours, drink as much as we can, and then go back home on our merry way. And, and it's not fun. Listen, I might not always attend what I'm invited to, but I want the invite always. I always see. invite me. Do you get that? Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? Not really. Always invite me. Right, you've you did say that, mm-hmm. but like, what are you talking about? Just, just everything. Yeah, I'm just putting that out to you. You've been invited to my wedding, and you came. You've been invited to my Christmas party, and you came. I've never been invited to your house. I don't have a house anymore. <laughs> well, but you did throughout the entire history I of this show. Invite you to Eyesore Lane. You could have. I could have just like, I don't know, gone through like. Oh, I could have been like one of those. Prisoners on the side of the road cleaning up the garbage. I could just been like taking one of those spiky things and just puncturing all of your inflatables and putting them right into a garbage bag off to the dumpster. Just it's a neighborhood beautification role that I could have perhaps fulfilled if I'd ever been invited. But no, apparently my tastes were too refined to ever even be invited by the woman who says always invite. Yes, always. Just putting it out there. Always invite Cookie. She'll decide whether she can attend or not, but I always want the ask. To feel included is something that I need. Yeah, you just were going back and forth between first person and third person there. It's just it's a little confusing. Wyatt, did you end up sharing an Uber with Cookie last night, or do you did you dodge that bullet? I, I did ha- uh, I did dodge that bullet. <laughs> okay. I, I, I walked I walked to the train station. Cookie took an Uber. Yeah, my Uber got lost. Well, what time did you get home? It was pretty late. Well, what happened was I fell asleep, though. So then I woke up, and Bobby was texting me because he was tracking me. He's like, where are you? And he found it funny for the girl who constantly thinks she's go- going to be kidnapped that I would fall that asleep. That is true. You do have a kidnap. In an Uber. <laughs> you do have a kidnap, like, weird fantasy phobia thing going on. Well, I was worried. because Fantasy. Because Dan had to leave the restaurant somewhat early to get back to catch a train, to not get ticketed in his car. He got ticketed anyway. And then Wyatt and Christine and I walked through Manhattan back to near Fox, and they were figuring out the Uber situation. I was walking back to my hotel. I got intercepted, boom, by Shannon Bream, and we were chatting outside, and I kept looking over my shoulder like, when is Christine going to notice that I'm talking to Shannon Bream because she was trying to book her for the show today and hadn't nailed down a time. And I was waiting for Christine. I was waiting to hear, like, her heels sprinting down the asphalt behind me to come, like, tackle Shannon Bream and put her in a burlap sack and drag her up to the radio studio. So I was sort of like, Shannon, why don't you turn this way so your back is to producer Christine? So that's why I was curious. I didn't see how you guys resolved your evening because I was trying to shield Shannon Bream from producer Christine's booking predations. But it all worked out fine. And Dan has to, I guess, fight these parking tickets now because you were paying them online but they were still ticketing your car yeah because you pay with the app you know and then it stopped at six and i didn't read that on the app so like i it kept going every hour they kept ticketing me but i got back just in time um for the train so but now you have to spend some of your weekend 
going yeah. to contest the tickets. Yeah, I got to go to the clerk's office in the town. It's a whole thing. Just cry. It always gets me out of everything. <laughs> Maybe. How, how much? That. Can I ask you how much money the tickets add up to? Just under hundred bucks. Is it worth hours of your Saturday? Honestly, no. So I might. I'm when just it comes saying, down to it, I might not actually go. I like that's all. Like a hundred bucks is nothing to sneeze at. But what is your time worth on a weekend? That's a decision that you have to make for yourself. A decision that I'm making is, well, the, the clock is, in fact, telling me to make this decision, that we're almost out of time. And Christine, we're almost out of time. What? Well, okay, fine. We could talk about it tomorrow. But don't forget the clothing swap we're going to do, Wyatt and I. Oh, nope. We're going to – let's put a pin in that conversation because you can hear the, you can hear the music. Should we even talk about the clothing swap? That might be a Friday topic. Back here tomorrow, 3 to 6 p.m. for the Guy Benson Show on the radio. Kennedy tonight, FBN, 7 p.m. See you there. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you in 21 hours on the Guy Benson Show. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.